0: Let's turn to Hebrews 9.24. Wow. Kids are going to be learning that prayer. <laughs> Didn't scare me. I'm, I have perfect peace beyond understanding. <laughs> Glad you're still standing. I'm going to give everybody a chance to calm down. I know you're all... Shaken. We're going to go from shaken to stirred now. We'll be stirred. This is increment 309, is it not? Thank you, Plastique, Plastic Marine. We have today, of course, the awareness that Israel is now fully at war. Having been, having received their version of 9/11 yesterday, and so we live in perilous times, and that's an indication of it. Second Timothy 3:1 to 13 should always be somewhat before us if we're going to understand our times, and also First Timothy 4:1 and 2. We live in a time when lawlessness is reigning in many of our city streets not because it's a particular trend but because it aids and abets those who are seeking for power and for a tyrannical hold over the citizenship of this nation. The influx of immigrants which is also a lawless thing rather than a proper Thing is also aiding and abetting the power grab of tyrants. Although, of course, God has a providential reason for all these things, as we mentioned last week, and is overruling the rules of men. And I want you to understand that today. Opponents of political leaders in power are demonized, prosecuted, and persecuted because, for the same reason, It aids and abets their purpose, which is moving toward a tyranny of power in which our liberties are severely threatened. These things are all destined to fail. These things are in the process of failing. And we have one permanent reality. It's the reality of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. I stand in this pulpit as one who reminds us of the permanence of him, of the glory of him, and of his overruling rule in the heavens, and the victory that he wrought at the cross. I pray with the Apostle Paul. And in fact, it's not a prayer, but a confession. I confess with him, may it never be that I should ever boast or glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which I have been crucified to this world and this world to me. The two slow disciples on the road to Emmaus, in one of my favorite passages, Luke 24, expressed the ignorance of many at the time, telling the stranger who had drawn up near them, had come near, it says, and Gidzo in the Greek, and was now walking with them in Luke 24, 15. They expressed their sadness and depression to him. He said, Why are you so sad? They said, told him how the chief priests handed Jesus over and sentenced to death and crucified him. Luke 24:20. 20, they failed to recognize that the suffering of Jesus on the cross was itself the victory of Jesus, the Messiah, the supreme victory of Jesus, their Messiah, who is walking with them, and it says something kept them from recognizing him. That crucifixion itself, the crucified Messiah, indicated the completion of his unique obedience to the death of the cross. The world may see a crucified Savior as the all-time loser. To cite a phrase from Jethro Tull. But the crucifixion was itself, without the resurrection, the greatest victory ever won. A crucified man hanging from a cross despised and rejected by men voted off the planet by religious men of professional piety crucified by a brutal Roman regime was the all-time winner. That crucified man was the all time winner that's why Jesus said to those slow disciples we often think of people that are slow to learn or slow in intellect or slow in ability or slow in emotional intelligence and that's all part of the human condition but one thing I'd never want to be is slow to believe slow of heart to believe like these disciples were Jesus said to them, didn't Messiah have to suffer these things? Because they didn't believe now. They said, well, he couldn't be our Messiah because he was crucified. And then Jesus said, well, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? We must recognize here that his suffering is his entry into glory and that his suffering itself was the victory the crucified Savior. He became obedient even to the extent of death, even death, the death. Paul added that. There was already a Christian hymn when Paul wrote Philippians. And he made that hymn the centerpiece of his epistle to the Philippians. But Paul added the little biting phrase where it says he became obedient to the extent of death, Paul put the death of the cross, the unique cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was the crucifixion of the all-time winner and the all-time victory over death. Jesus did not win the victory over death in resurrection He won the victory over death and the one who held the power of death in his death, in his suffering, in his death. His resurrection was the, here's the key word for the day, manifestation of that victory. His resurrection was the manifestation of that victory. Why do you think, did Jesus say it is finished with, a moan of defeat or with an inner cry of victory. Didn't Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? To suffer is pathane in the Greek and to enter is asalthane and they both have the same verbal punch and they can be perceived as happening at the same time to suffer to enter. His glory. They're joined in Jesus' entry into his messianic glory because it was precisely by suffering. That's no doubt why Paul declared so forcefully in his handwritten large letter. Today he would say, all caps. It is, he wrote in probably one inch high Unsel's in the Greek in Galatians six, eleven to eighteen, in his own handwriting, and in the middle of that, he took the pen away from the ammonensis and said, Let me write this. In the middle of it, he said, May it never be that I would ever glory, celebrate victory in anything but the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ by whom I was crucified to this world, and this world crucified to me. I don't see as the world sees. I don't see a crucified man on the cross of Christ as a loser, but as a victor, as the all-time winner. I don't see as this world sees. I've been crucified to this world and to its way of seeing things, its way of doing things, its way of conforming to the drumbeat of the prince of the power of the airborne spirits. I've been crucified. And the world has been crucified as far as I go. That has some salvific meaning to it, incidentally. The world may see the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ as a shameful loss and its occupant as a loser. I see it, said the apostle of Jesus Christ, as a glorious victory and its occupant, even before resurrection, as the all-time winner. The resurrection was not his victory. The resurrection manifested the victory of Jesus, the Messiah. Let me put some more teeth to this. Hebrews 2.14 says, Through his death, Jesus destroyed the one who had power over death. That is the devil. Through his death. The resurrected Jesus who was walking with them was the one who won the all-time victory on the cross. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? Slow of heart to believe. I don't know if you ever had anyone, a stranger, draw draw up to you when you're taking a walk or taking a hike and engages you in a friendly conversation and then calls you a fool (laughs) that's what Jesus did I I would have thought they would have recognized him then but because Paul used the same language in Galatians oh foolish Galatians wasn't Christ portrayed right before your eyes as crucified so why are you doing all this other religious stuff but of course they didn't recognize him until he broke the bread because he revealed his scarred hands and they knew then. They knew then that the victory was won in the crucified Christ and manifested on the third day in his resurrection. That's our word, manifested. Phanerosis, P-H-A-N-E-R-O-S-I-S I'm going to leave it to the notes, to let you see that. Phanerosis. So, we're dealing with that special word, manifestation, and continuing to do so today, as we did last week. We're dealing now, as always, with Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It doesn't say Jesus Christ and him resurrected. It says, Jesus Christ and him crucified, whom we assume and know that having been crucified, he's also resurrected. The resurrected is the crucified Christ. The crucified is the resurrected Christ. We are dealing now with the resurrected Christ who is the Christ who was crucified in weakness. The victory he won was won in utter weakness. It's not the kind of victory... We consider it as victory. Crucified in weakness, but who lives by the power of God. Second Corinthians thirteen: four. Who in the power of an indestructible life in Hebrews seven sixteen always lives to make intercession for us. In order to save us completely, that is not only into the ages to come, but now in the time in between when we really need salvation. We really need help. And so He's our helper. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. He represents us now as our advocate. There are two things we should know. They're both A words. One, archpriest. Two, advocate. In Hebrews 9.24, advocacy comes into the picture with archpriesthood, as we'll see in a minute. But The crucified Christ is the one who is resurrected and manifested to have won the victory over the one who had power over death. Two words... Have been coming into focus lately, and we took 11 messages. Although two more of those messages, at least maybe three, have been a continued exegesis of 2 Corinthians 5 14 to 21, which I call an apocalypse for right now, for the church to grasp right now. An apocalypse beginning with, If one died for all, then all died, ending with, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. That's an apocalypse for right now, apocalypsis. But there's a word that is similar to it, and it can even pass as a synonym for it, and that's phanerosis, P-H-A-N-E-R, long O-S-I-S. Phanerosis. It means both disclosure and disclosure, or revelation. Both apocalypsis or apocalypsis and phanerosis mean disclosure according to the Greek lexicons, especially Gingrich and Danker, which is my favorite one because it's a short lexicon. In first 1 Peter 1, 1.7 and 113, we find the word apocalypsis, apocalypse. Well, 1 Peter 1.20 has thanerao, the verbal form of phanerosis, We studied that recently, remember? He was foreknown, verily foreknown, the King James says, but the actual text should say, elect indeed for us, elect indeed, but manifested in these last times for you, Peter said, for you. For you is everywhere in the scriptures. For you, for us, for you, pro for you. So 1 Peter 1.7 and 13 have apocalypsis, while 1 Peter 1.20 has phanerao. And so there's certainly a similarity here. But phanerosis seems to refer to the manifestation. In fact, I looked up the word in a modern Greek dictionary the Langenscheidt dictionary, which is what you read when you want to go over to Greece, and it had phanerosis in it, and it had one word definition. It simply said manifestation, Phanerosis. That's that little yellow one. They have a little Latin one and a little Greek one and a French one and all these little dictionaries if you're traveling the world, and that happened to have Manifestation. And so, phanerosis seems to refer to the manifestation of Christ both in his incarnation and the days of Christ's flesh and his manifestation of the parousia. Parousia is another key word that we find in the Greek text. Parousia, P-I-R-O-U-S-I-A, which means simply effective presence. His parousia is something future that we, we see in 1 Thessalonians 3.13 and 4.15. And incidentally, there is a rapture, but it's not a rapture of a few people. It's a rapture of all the remaining on earth when the resurrected appear in glory. It's a totally different thing from what's being billed today as the rapture. The word rapture, harpazo, is found in 1 Thessalonians, but it has an altogether different meaning from the idiotic doctrine brought forth in such rightly called fictional books like left behind rightly called fictional because they're fictional all the way through including their prediction of a rapture so parousia means effective presence it's a presence of the lord that will come in a universal appearing But it's an effective presence because at that moment, he will effectively create all things new, make all things new. He will effectively change the constitution of the bodies of Christians to make them conformable to his own body. In fact, he will effectively do that for all human beings of all times and places whether they are alive and remain on the earth when he comes to be effectively present or whether they have already died and were resurrected. And there is a case to be made, and we have yet to enter that dialectic, of resurrection occurring at the moment of death because if you deal with that whole idea of time being a field rather than a continuum, then resurrection happens at the moment of death. And so... We have a lot to say about that there's a lot to say in a dialectic where we bring one thing against another and match it against another and go through that whole thing and come to a conclusion so there's certainly a similarity here between apocalypsis and phanerosis, but the apocalypse that's found in 1 Peter 1, 7, and 13, can also be described as a phanerosis or a manifestation. Consequently, there is an interchangeability between these two terms. Apocalypse, phanerosis. Hebrews emphasizes the word phanerosis. 1 Peter 1, 7 could as easily as read this way. At the phanerosis of Jesus Christ... It could easily read that way just as well as it says at the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. They could, you could interchange it and there would create no confusion at all. It could also be argued that in 1 Peter 1.20, Christ being Phanerao or manifested in the last times for you could also be apocalypto, unveiled or disclosed, in these last times for you, and it would create no confusion of meaning at all. Apocalypsis phanerosis. In the book of Revelation, John uses Apocalypsis Yesu Christu. That's the title of the book. Apocalypsis Yesu Christu. You can call it John's Apocalypse if you want, but it's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And it's given rather than Phanorosis. Jesus Christu. It could be Phanerosis Jesu Christu, but it's Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, because the actual piece of writing by John is in a specific genre of writing called apocalyptic. There are many written works. There were 30 at the time John wrote the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. 30 books called apocalypses. Jewish. Jewish Christian and Gnostic writings. They claimed to be apocalypses. None of them made the canon, but John's apocalypse of Jesus Christ made the canon of the scripture, made the cut. And I think he deliberately said that because he said there's a lot of apocalypses floating around today. But here's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And it was a salvific manifestation, not a destructive manifestation. There's destruction in this apocalypse because it's the destruction of the old to bring forth the new. There's judgment and grace, the judgment that brings about the new. Now, here's where I'm going to get into a little detail. And this is where it's going to be a little unclear and then clear. We go from obscurity to clarity. As we've said, there are three comings of Jesus Christ. We can look at it this way. As a way of viewing this as a lens, there are three comings of Jesus Christ. One, his incarnation, culminating in his crucifixion and death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Two, his coming in the spirit remember he said i don't leave you as orphans i will come to you not speaking there of what we call the perusia or the universal appearing but his coming to be in and with the church in the holy spirit john 14:18 etc all the way through really his whole discourse his whole upper room discourse and then third the perusia which is his consummating revelation and effective presence and that's Philippians 3:20 when he changes the form of our uh, the constitution of our bodies and changes creation liberates creation from its slavery to corruption etc. But I want to sharpen our blade here as always. An even better way of looking at this is to say that there is a first coming of Christ which is the incarnation which culminates in the crucifixion of Jesus and his burial. That is the coming of Jesus Christ, the first coming of Jesus Christ, we could say. But in order to sharpen our blade and make this even more clear about how the Scripture sees it, there are three comings again, where he comes again. There are three comings again after that coming, which culminates with his crucifixion and his burial. There are three comings again of Jesus, three comings again. One, his resurrection from the dead is a coming again. In 1 Timothy 3.16, which we have six particular things said about him, he was manifested, it says, fanarao. He was manifested, manifested, fanarao, in the flesh, that's not referring to his incarnation but his manifestation in resurrection in the resurrected flesh the immortal and incorruptible transcorporeal or transphysical flesh in fact all six things in 1st Timothy 3:16 speaking of the mystery of godliness are about his resurrection because this is a hymn again that was found in Paul's writings on the occasion of Resurrection, or on the occasion of what we now call Easter. And so, his coming again, the first one is his resurrection. He was manifested in the flesh, in resurrected, incorruptible, immortal flesh, it means in resurrection, vindicated by the Spirit by that same manifestation, observed by messengers, that's human messengers who went out and preached to the nations believed on in the world and taken up in glory so that's resurrection which ended in his ascension and we could fan that out another day there's a lot to it secondly his second coming again is his coming in and with the spirit the spirit of truth to be in and with the new covenant community that's you that's John 14, 18, and following. He's called the Spirit of Jesus Christ for a reason in Philippians 1 19, Acts 16, 7, the Spirit of Jesus. So that's the second coming again of Jesus Christ. He comes again after his first advent, in which he was crucified and buried in the culmination of his obedience. He comes again. With the Holy Spirit in the Holy Spirit. First he comes again in resurrection. Manifested in the flesh. Then he comes again in the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, his third coming again is his parousia. His effective presence. Where he universally appears. And every eye sees him. Even those that appears to him, etc. In Romans, Revelation make that one 1 Corinthians 15.23, where the word parousia is actually found. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, 1 Thessalonians 4.15 and 5.23, James 5.7, 5, 1 John 2.28. That's also called his universally effective presence in which he brings about the creational and human change of constitution and condition it's been so long awaited by a groaning creation, a groaning humanity, and a groaning Holy Spirit within humanity. Romans eight nineteen to 23. The Holy Spirit condescends to share our groaning anticipation of this event in us. So it's a good thing. It's an anticipation of a majestic, glorious happening. Now, we're all going to come to an end. Someday, the Holy Spirit is going to probably tell you. I hope he does tell me when he give me a little bit of a warning, like a split second saying, your time's up. Your opportunity's over. No more preaching, no more teaching, no more studying. Bye, you're coming home. Boom, you're done. That's it. You've come to your end as a witness of Jesus Christ on this planet. That's the end. It's called death there's another way to come to an end and that's if there's a generation still living when Jesus comes those that have been raised together from the dead will come with him and then those who are alive and remain on the earth shall be caught up they come to their end in a an encounter with the living Christ and they go through effectively what happens at death but they go right into a translation into a glorious body and then the fire, and the fire can happen at death, or the fire can happen at this moment. The fire's coming to all of us, it's going to burn away all the dross, all the stuff that we might have been ashamed of rightly, all the stuff in our lives that we called service of Jesus Christ, which wasn't, we felt really good about in ourselves, but God didn't feel really good about. All the stuff, all the vanity, all the... Pseudo victories that we won in our flesh. Poof. But we're saved because there's a foundation that cannot be laid, that's already been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. So, there's a big controversy. Well, Paul expected to be in that generation that doesn't see death, and he was wrong. They like to say that. Liberal theologians like to say that, which liberal theologian is another word for moron. <laughs> but he was right to expect it, and so are you. You're right to expect, anticipate, and hope for that moment. I personally am weird because I think I want to die instead of get raptured or instead of being the generation that comes. Because I think, I think that would be just cool Anyways, death is cool. Ask Bill and Ted in their excellent adventure. Hey, death, dude. <laughs> and no, I I think I personally, I know most of you would rather just have hey the Lord come and, and change you and and you never have to see death. That would be a, kind of an interesting thing to be, like Enoch who didn't see death. That doesn't have a a uh, priority over everything. It doesn't. It's not like guaranteed for everybody it isn't Enoch didn't see it before the flood and there's going to be a whole millions and millions of people that that don't see it at all or experience it when he comes but everybody experiences an end and we will all be changed all of us will be changed we will all be changed that's all the human race we will be changed one way or another we come to our end And that's when, again, time's up, it's over. But I had plans. Time's up, it's over. Your opportunity's over, your period of being a witness on this earth, the battle, to fight the battle, to run the race, to fight the good fight, to finish the course, to keep the faith, it's over. Boom. And thank God we're going to be judged after that as Jesus Christ sees us and not as we see ourselves. Most people see themselves literally physically as less attractive than other people see them because of a dysmorphia of of their a, a dysmorphic situation in the mind it's called dysmorphia and sometimes ladies have it and they say to their i look terrible today and the husband says no you don't And he's not flattering her. He says, no, you really look good. No, I don't. I have this and this and this imperfection and this. And that's how we see ourselves. We see ourselves with a spiritual dysmorphia. But thank God Jesus Christ sees us in grace. And I think we're going to be a lot more surprised about the things he rewards us for that we never dreamed we'd be rewarded for than we'll be surprised about the things he burns up that we thought we'd be rewarded for. He has more grace than you can imagine, and I know that about him, so I face my death with a measure of joyous expectation because I know that I'm going to meet the God of all grace in my Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm not afraid of the fire that I'm going to go through. I'm not afraid of it at all because I know that our God is a consuming fire, but our God is love. God is love. So much for that. There are also three appearings, and this is where we're going to get to Hebrews 9.24. We dealt with three comings again, but there are also three appearings. All three of these appearings are the subject of our present text. That's Hebrews 9.24 to 28. See, you didn't, see what I did there? It took you there. Didn't know that. And Hebrews 9.24 to 28 is a micro-apocalypse of the three appearings of Christ. One... His first appearing. Now, there's a dis- distinction between his appearings and his comings again. So get this squared away. And it's, it's going to be complex at first. His first appearing in which he put away sin by the offering of himself. In a way, that's the most important and significant appearing. We're going to see that in Hebrews 9.26, which I think is the sine qua non of all of the verses of Hebrews. Once, now once... At the termini of the ages, he appeared, 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 to put away sin, remove it, take it out of the picture altogether. Make it not to be. He removes, to remove sin, athetasis, annul it, remove it, by the offering of himself. Second is his second appearing, which is found explicitly in 928, where it says, if you look at your text, it says, he will appear a second time. Now, that's pretty clear. Deuteros, a second time. Deuteronomy, a second law, or a second giving of the law. Deuteronomos. He will appear a second time. That's the second one. Without sin, meaning without having to deal with sin, without having to become sin. He did that in the first advent, the first coming, the first appearing. He comes, he appears again, and we've recognized this as the archpriest appearing again after having gone into the Holy of Holies and coming a second time before the people to say, the blood that I offered was accepted and this time it's not the blood that I offered was accepted, so you're clear for another year. He said, This time the blood, my blood was accepted by God the Father, not for the sins of Israel, not for the sins of ignorance of Israel only, but for the sins of all people of all time, sins of cognizance as well as ignorance of all people of all time, was accepted by God the Father. So not only is the church glorified, but all of humanity comes into the eternal glory of God. And there's no question about it. But now, here's where it gets a little tricky. There's a third appearing, and I don't mean that, and I'm doing this in my own way, but the third appearing of Jesus Christ isn't chronologically beyond his second appearing as, as without sin What does it say he brings, incidentally? I forgot. You can say it if you want. You can actually say it. Bringing what? What does he bring with him? Oh, salvation. Oh, that's right. Without sin, which he became for everybody, he comes with salvation for the same everybody. It's a universal revelation of salvation. Incidentally, his name, Jesus, means salvation. So everyone will see the salvation of God, and the salvation of God is Yeshua. They will see Jesus, and to see him is to be saved, is to experience salvation. So there will be salvation for all. But his third coming is not chronologically after that, it's the earth third appearing rather. Let's make that appearing. What I call his third appearing is actually not his appearing before the faces of men, but before the face of God in heaven. For us. I call this his third appearing, not because it's third in chronological order, but because the appearing wherewith he will be seen by all men is described as his appearing a second time. So there is a third appearing, not chronologically, but an appearing of a third kind, where now, what does it say in Hebrews 9.24? He appears before the face of God for us. He did not enter into an earthly tent with the blood of others. He entered into the heavenly to heaven itself with his own blood, having found eternal redemption. Now to appear, and it doesn't say really in the presence of there, because as I said, it means literally, prosopon, before the face of God, and I love that little phrase, for us. Everywhere it appears. Now, Jesus Christ's third appearing, I told you it was going to get a little complicated, corresponds to his second coming again. He came in his incarnation culminating with his crucifixion. His first coming again is his resurrection. His second coming again is his coming in and with the spirit to be in and with the new covenant community the church and so his third appearing before the face of god in heaven for us corresponds with his second coming again in the holy spirit so he's got our backs on the earth and in the heaven on in heaven It says he makes intercession for us to save us completely before the face of God. On earth, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and the Son of God, therefore, helps us in this time in between in which we are supposed to be embattled and life is supposed to be tough. This world isn't supposed to be a whole bunch of streets called safe places for us. This isn't a safe world. It's not a safe place. It's an embattled space. ...in which there's a great conflict going on of powers and principalities and powers. There's a class of the eons. The reason why there's so much mental instability among children is because their parents don't tell them that. Their parents say, well, you'll always be able to find a safe space. And No, you're not going to find a safe space in this world. Try to find a safe space in Gaza today. Try to find a safe space in Tel Aviv today in God's nation called Israel. Try to find a safe space in Philadelphia today. This time in between is a time of great adversity, and we have the Son of God who has passed into the heavens as our helper. He offers help, and that's what this message is doing. Uh, The whole reason for the preacher is to be a helper of your joy. I pray that this message will be a means of the helper helping you in this time. So his third appearing corresponds to his second coming again. The third appearing is coetaneous, and that simply means of equal duration with the second coming again of Jesus Christ, according to our proposal today. His second coming again is his coming to be present with the new covenant community on earth in the Holy Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Jesus Christ, while his third appearing is his ongoing appearance before the face of God in heaven. Jesus' presence and activity with the church enables the new covenant community to be his witnesses to the world that has been reconciled to God in Christ but does not yet know it. Do you know you're here for one reason? One reason alone is not to be successful in the world's eyes. It's to be a witness of Jesus Christ, period, over and out. And there will be a time when that comes to an end. Stop, full stop, end. Your opportunity for that is done. You're done. Oh, no, I was never a witness. Yes, you were. You showed your faith by your deeds of love and service and putting yourself last instead of first in your family. You did so much more than you thought to be a witness unto me. And those whom you judged not to be talking enough about Jesus showed their faith by their deeds while you said you had faith but had no deeds. Interesting. Interesting. It's going to be a lot different than we think. Everybody gets surprised when they see Jesus. I don't care how well you know him. You think you know him so well that there won't be any surprises when you meet him? You're going to be surprised. So am I. I expect to be very surprised. So. His second coming again is his coming to be present with the New Covenant community. His third coming is his presence before the face of God. Both of them are for us. Both of those appearances are for us. In other words, he's got your back in heaven. He's got your back on earth. His ongoing corporeal presence and appearance before God the Father in a human, incorruptible, immortal body involves his intercession for us and advocacy for us. In the time in between the two radical alterations of the human and creational situation, Jesus has our backs in heaven and on earth. After all, Jesus the resurrected said what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18, oh, and then he said, oh, and lo, lo, we would say today, hello, or hell, no, no, we'd say, hello, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you on earth, and I'm representing you in heaven. His first appearing corresponds with his first coming. His second appearing corresponds with his third coming again. His second appearing corresponds with his third coming again, which is his consummating revelation, which brings about the universal alteration of the human and cosmic condition. Put that in fancy theological terms. He brings about cosmological and anthropological universal change. Will not all sleep Paul said using a euphemism for death but we will all be changed there's a change coming wasn't there a song about that never mind I have to be careful what I say because last couple weeks ago I said maple cream and guess what I got in the mail from Waco Texas from my friend Pastor Mark Whitmer a box of maple cream cookies you say what did you do did you share them with everybody because you're a witness of Christ no I ate them all By myself, as a witness to Jesus Christ, I ate all the maple cream cookies and the pumpkin spice cookies, two boxes of cookies, ate them all. I even tried to give Pam one. Pam, do you want one? Because then I'd feel better. Would you like, please eat one of the pumpkin spice cookies. They're really good. No, I don't want a (sighs) pumpkin. I had to eat them all. Could you give one to the postal worker that comes to your door every day? No. Gave him a, I gave him a bottle of water when it was hot, but I didn't give him a cookie. No way. So I have to be careful what I say. I said maple cream, and I got a box of maple cream. They're shaped like maple leaves. With, you ever see those? If you eat one, you will be having a foretaste of heaven, but it won't be heaven itself. If you eat them all, well, I just can't, I can't even tell you what it's like. So then... Where was I? (laughs) Let's look at our current text. Hebrews 9, for the Messiah did not enter a man-made sanctuary, a mere representation of the true one, but into heaven itself, into heaven itself. Now, and that word now is an ongoing present tense. Nunc stands is how the Latin puts it. The standing now. Now in the ongoing present to appear before the face of God. Pronobus. for us, for us is everywhere. Virtually everywhere we look, God is for us. Jesus is for us. God determined himself to be God for us and no other God. There is no other God. But God for us. I am the Lord your God. You will have no other God before you. In worship, that is. He could say, I am the Lord your God for you. There is no other God. One that is not for you. An idle God. An angry God. A bitter little idol that you put on your mantle kind of God. Nope. God determined himself in eternity to be God for his creation. God for human beings, all of them. God for us. And to be no other God, I will be no other God but God for them. And we learned this by incorporating the doctrine of election into our exposition and theological exegesis of Hebrews. God's promeity, P R O M E I T, we did it in Romans. God's being for us, as we saw it in Romans, was expressed in the handing over of his Son for us all, Romans 8 31 to 32, as the Lamb of God. This promeity, however, is ongoing throughout the time in between the two radical alterations. And that promeity is in the form of Jesus' representation of us as eternal archpriest. Now, I'm going to close with this. There's another word that is also means fanarao, it means manifestation. It's emphanizo. You'll see it in the notes if you want the notes. E M P H A N I Z Long O. Emphanizo, notice the same root, that P-H-A-N is in the middle, emphanizo. It's a synonym of Phanarao, but with an added formal judicial nuance to it. So when it says he appears before the face of God for us, it's adding to the priestly an advocacy, an advocacy. A judicial advocacy, a formal advocacy for us. Emphanizo, therefore, is used. Now to appear, and that means again, to make a formal report before authorities on a judicial matter is how it's usually used, like in Acts 24 1 or 2415. It often signifies to bring charges or to accuse formally. And it means to manifest or exhibit to view. And properly, it means to present oneself to the sight of another. But in this case, Christ has entered into heaven itself now in the ongoing present throughout the course of this present evil age, throughout this time in between and forever to appear before the face of God for us, meaning as an advocate for us. So he is arch priest in representation for us, and the offering, he's also an advocate for us. Where do we find that? 1 John 2, 1. Jesus Christ the righteous. If, any, if anyone sins, and we all do and will until we're glorified, let him know that he has an advocate, paracletos Advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the righteous one who is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. The whole mass of humanity, all people, all times, all places. He's our advocate. And so John is dealing with advocacy. Hebrews is dealing with Arch priesthood. John presupposes a priesthood. Hebrews presupposes an advocacy. And so in, in this closing section, I want to emphasize that. What John the Elder emphasizes in 1 John and in John's Gospel also as well, in John 3.16, as well as in Revelation, is love. Note again 1 John 4.9. In this... Or by this, God's love was manifested. Eris passive, indicative form of the verb fanarao. Every time I see this, I get into a little bit of a, an ecstatic shouting in my study. Fanarao. In this, God's love was manifested to us. God sent His only, eternally begotten Son into the world so that we would live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. That's love. In John 3.16, the us whom God loved is the world. In John 1 John 2.1-2, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation for the sins of the world. The propitiation, which is the act of our great archpriest, is the basis of biblical, soteriological universalism. It's the basis of universal salvation. Biblical universalism is a theological theme because God elected Himself to be for us in love. And He elected and predestinated us in love to be conformed into the image, that is, the very person of His Son. Biblical universalism is Christological or Christ-centered because of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally salutary or salvific impact of his cross, his death, his blood, the cross of him who loved us and gave himself for us. The propitiation which Jesus Christ, the merciful and faithful archpriest, made for us, Hebrews 2.17, is an act of perfect love. This is what is presupposed in Hebrews, love. Consequently, we can't say that love is not a primary theme of Hebrews. We cannot say that, like Sesla Spike did in his Wonderful commentary otherwise than that. Simply because agape appears only twice in the whole homily, Hebrews 6.10 and 10.24, sometimes things are conspicuous by their absence. The mention of love is only twice in Hebrews, but the whole of the homily is undergirded by love because the propitiation or the act of Jesus Christ, giving himself once at the end of the ages... To put away sin is an act of perfect love. The once and for all forever efficacious sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the termini of the ages is the manifestation, (phanerosis) of God's perfect love, the apocalypse of God's universally saving grace in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. It is impossible to conceive of the self-offering of Jesus Christ at the termini of the ages, of the manifestation of this elect one, indeed at the end of times, as anything other than the phanerosis of perfect love and the apocalypsis of the majesty of God's universal saving mercy by the faithfulness, the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ to the death of the cross. Amen. And Father, we thank you For this opportunity pray that you use this message as a means to extend and give help to many who are in the process of battling in this time in between we thank you for the wonderful assurance that we already live in a reconciled world because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself We have this assurance and this reality in our soul. It's called faith. But we also have faith, which is the hope, the substance of things hoped for. And what is hoped for is that great change of all in which the very constitution of our humanity will go from weakness to the power of God, from mortality to immortality, from corruptibility to incorruptibility. And in between these two great, alterations as we live in this time in between we pray that we will have the spiritual vision to see Jesus before your face in heaven representing us and that we would be occupied with the occupant of the cross who won the all time victory do this for us father because only you can